You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'll be reading Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated. Thomas. Good morning, everyone. How are you today? That's good. Well, welcome to Meadowbrook. I'm extremely happy that you are here joining us today. Give me one minute while I get set up here. Um, So as Keith mentioned... My name is Ben, and I'm filling in for Keith since he and the staff suffered so hard going down to Phoenix. Um, I can only imagine what tribulation that entailed. <laughs> um, so I am an elder, as Keith mentioned, here at Meadowbrook, and as I told you the last time that I had the opportunity to preach, I count it as one of the most significant blessings of my life to serve alongside these men who are just absolutely sold out for Jesus and his kingdom. Um, I love each and every one of them and love working with them. Uh, my wife, Michaela, she's on staff here. Together we have two little boys, Brayden and Grayson. You'll be happy to know that we survived without without any issue with her being gone. The house is standing, the children are unscathed, the dogs are still barking. Um, so we, we made it through. Thank you for your prayers. <laughs> we also host a life group here at Meadowbrook and serve in some other ministries. Now, all of that being said, I am not a pastor by occupation. So please remember that as we're working through our uh, message today. And remember, we're in church and we're told to be charitable towards one another. But professionally, I work in software development and artificial intelligence applications. And part of what drew me to that line of work is my love of data and how we can use software and computers to show how things relate to each other and to dive really deep into those relationships. And you may at this point be asking, so Ben, what what does all of that have to do with Genesis and Revelation? That's a great question. Thank you so much for asking it. One of the key takeaways that I hope to leave all of us with today is that the Bible, a compilation of 66 books, is in fact a complete and cohesive narrative of God's eternal plan of salvation to bring his fallen creation back to himself. So this is incredible because the Bible was written over the course of about 1,500 years. This started with Moses writing the first five books of the Bible somewhere around 1400 BC, and then it ended with the Apostle John writing the book of Revelation, which we just read from, in about 95 AD. So during this time, over 40 individuals contributed to the writing of the various books of the Bible. Um, Some of these authors wrote just one book, think Isaiah the prophet. Others wrote multiple books. We just talked about Moses. Uh, The Apostle Paul was another one of those. And some of these books even were authored by multiple people. Uh, An example of this would be Psalms, another would be Proverbs. So let that sink in for a minute though. At least 40 different people who were separated by centuries wrote the Bible, and yet it is a complete and cohesive narrative of God's plan of salvation. They came from very different backgrounds. Some were kings, some were fishermen. They came from very different cultures. Um, Think for a minute about how your lived experience would be totally different if you had lived during the time of King David versus if you were in Babylon in exile. And yet, despite all of this, the Bible is a complete and cohesive narrative. And the people writing it wrote accounts of God that are internally consistent within the book that they wrote, but 
even more importantly across the entire narrative. Now, that's incredible because when I go to movies, sometimes I notice that the movie can't even stay internally consistent with itself for an hour and a half. Um, if you go on social media, a lot of the posts that you see can't stay internally consistent across two sentences. And yet the Bible is completely consistent with itself. Now, I want to move us from merely being impressed by this fact to have it actively change our hearts and how we view the Word of God in awe and wonder. Um, so this is one of my favorite data representations of all time. It shows biblical cross-references that the creator of this image had identified. There's about 35,000 of them. Each line represents a verse referencing another verse in the Bible. And what we see here is that the Bible is quite literally in conversation with itself. We can see concepts coming up again and again and again. We can see a prophecy being made over here and then fulfilled over here. We can see God telling us something about his character or one of his attributes, and then he elaborates on it later on in the narrative. But throughout the entire thing, we see the fulfillment of God's eternal plan to redeem his creation back to himself. Now, this has led people like Jordan Peterson, the renowned psychologist. Um, he's not a Christian, by the way, so he's not saying this from a point of Christian bias, but he says that this book, the Bible, is the first hyperlinked book in the world. And what he means by this is that we can go through the Bible almost like we can navigate through web pages on the internet where we're clicking on links and they take us somewhere else. Just instead of clicking on links, we're following cross-references through the biblical narrative. And this is one of the underlying reasons why you could spend lifetimes going through this book and you would never get out of it everything that it has to offer. Um, the other reason, of course, is that, well, these are the words of God and he's just a lot smarter than we are. If we look to Isaiah chapter 55, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And all I can say is praise God that God's ways are higher than my ways and my thoughts, that his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. But what we're going to do today is we're going to pull on one of those threads. We're going to click through the hyperlinks, if you will. And we're going to get to stand in awe at how the gospel of God, the good news, radiates from the pages of Scripture. Now, you probably have already seen the thread that I'm talking about, the thing that connects Genesis and Revelation together, the tree of life. Now, this tree makes its first appearance in the second chapter of the Bible, and then it reappears in the very last chapter of the Bible. I bet that's just coincidence, right? So let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis, where the story starts. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here we see Adam being placed into an idyllic garden setting. Um, it's filled with life and sustenance and beauty. Trees seem to abound. But the author draws our attention immediately to two of these trees. The first, we are told, is in the midst of of the garden. This phrase has significance through the Bible, but most especially in the first five books. This was the time when Moses and the people of Israel were wandering for 40 years, waiting to go into the promised land. It was when God had that nation of Israel, who were to be his representatives to the nations, build the tabernacle. And this is where God's presence would have been most vividly and intensely seen. Check this out. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, it's not easy to see in our English translations, but where it says dwell among them, the Hebrew word that gets translated among here in 
Exodus is exactly the same Hebrew word that gets translated in the midst of in the garden. Throughout the tabernacle's description, we see that God's plan is to literally be in the middle of his people. The word tabernacle even means dwelling place. Now, God goes so far as to have the tabernacle placed right here in the center of the Israelite camp. He didn't just want to be God of his people. He wanted to be God dwelling with his people. Now, the people of this time and this place would have literally seen God's glory rest over the top of the tabernacle. You'll see this referred to in the biblical narrative as the pillar of smoke and the pillar of fire seen here. So, therefore, these people, when this book was written, would have seen the deep imagery intended within the Genesis passage— The garden was where God intended to dwell with his people. That's why we see God literally walking in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And as the tabernacle was in the middle of the Israelite camp, so too was something in the middle of the garden, the tree of life. Now, we don't know much about this tree except it would have allowed the man and the woman to live forever. God intends that his image bearers will have life. We're going to see this come up again and again and again in today's sermon. He is, after all, the God of the living. He is the living God. So God placed life, which only he can give, right in the middle of the garden, where it could be easily seen and easily accessed. Notice that in the biblical narrative, we never see a prohibition against eating from the tree of life. We see Jesus add meaning to this when he told his disciples, I come that they may have life and have it abundantly, John 10.10. God wants his people to have life, and more on that in a moment. The only other tree mentioned by name is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and I want to pause here for a minute because a lot has been misunderstood about this name, and it's been misused. It's the tree not of knowledge, Knowledge is not what hurts us. Um, If we look to Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Our knowledge should be rooted in the fear of God. It's not a bad thing, though. This tree is the knowledge of something very, very specific, namely good and evil. What this tree represents is us reaching out to try to define what only God can define. It is a representation of how we choose to have moral experience, not through fear of God, but through disobedience of him. And we try to define good and evil for ourselves. Let's look a little bit further in the narrative together. Um, So this is uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There it is, right there. The temptation was, you will be like God. Open up a newspaper and you will see the consequences of believing this lie. This is the underlying heart condition that has plagued humanity since this moment. Want to know how people like Putin come to be? If you want to know, do you want to know how people can commit genocide and, and call it righteous? How people can murder children and call it justified? How human beings can enslave one another? It's all right there in that one fragment of a sentence. You will be like God. I get to define good and evil, not God. I am the center of and the reason for all of creation, not God. As Eve reached out for the forbidden fruit, we also reach out and try to define what only God can, good and evil. They ate from the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil because they believed the lie that God was holding something back from them. Their belief led them to eat from a false tree of life. And we do this too. It should be, this should be seen as a representation of what was to come. We reach out expecting other things than God to offer life, and they simply don't. We do this, brothers and sisters. I do this. We believe that we know better. We buy into the lie that God's law is meant to enslave us rather than to set us free. Moreover, and I need us all to see this, Adam and Eve were already image bearers of God. And they believed the lie that they weren't. Let's flip back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Adam and Eve were already image bearers of the God who is awesome enough to be able to speak the universe into existence. They had access to the tree of life. God did not, eat, did not issue a prohibition against eating from that tree. He wants us to have life, and he wants us to have it abundantly. However, humanity chose rebellion, and with rebellion, death. Now, the question may arise, why couldn't Adam and Eve then eat of the tree of life? Why did God take that away from them? They still could have lived forever. And I think embedded in that question is a deep and profound misunderstanding of the nature of God in the modern age. Um, he is both perfectly holy and the perfect definition of love. He is both of those things at the same time. And because of our sin, we are separated from him. This would have resulted then in our eternal separation from the creator God. Sin and God's holiness cannot coexist together. And as we saw from Exodus, God is not content to leave us where we are. He wants to dwell with us. And he doesn't want us to be separated from him for eternity. So we were banished from the garden and we became subjected to death. Now, here we see the underlying split in the imagery and the metaphors that the Bible uses trees for. Um, to the ancient Hebrew mind, trees represent something inherently linked to life and vitality. Um, turn with me to Psalm 1, starting right in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The tree in this case is said to not wither. In opposition, we see the chaff, which is fleeting and it's blown to and fro. The tree is firmly rooted. This is in opposition to the chaff, which is driven away. If we turn to Psalm 92, starting in verse 12, we see the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the, in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Notice how the same attributes we see in Psalm 1 are also found in Psalm 92. Trees are used as a representation, an image of flourishing and strength. They yield fruit, and they maintain their vitality for a really long time. Now, this makes sense because trees can live for hundreds or even thousands of years, depending on the species. They make excellent metaphors for abundant life. But notice something important here. It's not just anybody that's like a tree. It is the person who what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is planted in the house of the Lord. He flourishes in the courts of God. Their roots are solidly, well, 
rooted in the only source of eternal life. Now, there's an opposite imagery of trees in the Bible, and we're going to look at that. Trees are also used to represent darkness and, and evil. It ties back to the two trees in the garden where we exchanged a truth for a lie and we exchanged life for death. There is a warning that Moses left the Israelites with as they were about to enter into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And nested within the commandments about how God's people were to act is this. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. Now, this commandment was given because the people were going into a land where the surrounding cultures worshipped pagan gods. One of the chief among, among these was the fertility goddess Asherah. And one of the ways that people worshipped Asherah was to plant a tree or set up a pole on a hill, typically. You'll see these in your Bible referred to as the high places. And if you read your whole Bible, which I strongly recommend that you do, you'll notice this tendency in people. People will try to take a piece of God's creation and then worship that created thing instead of God himself. We exchange a true thing for a false thing. Sounds kind of reminiscent of Genesis, right? So Paul put it like this in Romans after he described how we can see some of God's attributes in creation, namely his power and grandeur. Because when we look out in creation, it's grand and powerful and vast beyond comprehension. But Paul then issues a warning. And his warning is that despite the vastness and the grandeur of creation, don't replace the created thing for the creator. So we see this in Romans 1, 22, 25. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen? But it gets worse. It gets a lot worse. Instead of just not heeding the warning of Moses, Israel participated in and then went beyond the worship that they were prohibited from. In 2 Chronicles, we see what God's people chose to do instead of worshiping and honoring the one true living God. This is in 2 Chronicles, the very beginning of chapter 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and burned his sons as an offering, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord God drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green what? Tree. Now, a lot is packed into these four verses, and I could spend an entire sermon just unpacking this. Um, but I want you to see a couple of things very quickly. First, just like we saw in Paul's letter to the Romans, who we worship has consequences beyond just the worship itself. Paul talks about God handing people over to the lusts of their hearts, resulting in them dishonoring their bodies because of their worship. Similarly, Ahaz murdered his own sons because of whom he worshipped. Second, we see a direct tie between Moses' warning and the sins of the nation of Israel and what they did. Some are very quick to talk about God's judgment of the other nations that Israel drove out, but I need you to know something. What is missed is exactly what we just saw back in Chronicle, in Second Chronicles. That judgment happened for a reason. These people were committing abominations up to and including human sacrifice. What is also missed 
is that God judged his promised people exactly the same way when they took on these practices. If you read to the end of 2 Chronicles, you will see Israel being judged by the nations around them. Babylon invades and takes over, and the Israelites are exiled into Babylon. Their rejection of God and the subsequent sin led directly to their judgment just like the people who were there before they got there. Now, I know this probably sounds like a really bleak story so far, but this is a foundational truth that we have to understand if we're to grasp the gospel. We are fallen. It's, it's not just Adam, it's not just Eve, it's not just Ahaz, it's not just the nation of Israel, it's not just the Pharisees. This is my story, and it's your story too. But, by the grace of God, it's not the end of the story. We see the promise of this story even as God puts a curse on the earth and removes Adam and Eve from the garden. There will be one who comes one day who the serpent, the evil one, will wound. But it's the serpent who will be crushed. God then makes his promise to Abraham that through Abraham, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. He then reiterates that promise to Abraham's son, Isaac, and his grandson, Jacob, later to be renamed Israel. King David was told that one of his descendants would be the promised Messiah, whose throne would be established forever. We can read the promises from the prophets in detail, and I want to focus on just one of these, but there are hundreds more. This is Isaiah 53, in case you would like to follow along, right at the very beginning. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers, is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And yet they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That sound like anybody you know? Jesus, right? The miraculous thing is, is that this prophecy was written over 700 years before Jesus lived. It accurately renders the same scripture that Jesus would have read about himself when he was here undertaking his own ministry. We know that this is true because we have the archaeological evidence. This is the great Isaiah scroll. It was one of the manuscripts that was found in the caves of Qumran. Uh, you'll probably know them as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it contains not just the prophecy that we read, but the entire book of Isaiah. It's the same words that you and I read today. And when the archaeologists carbon dated it, you'll never guess what. That manuscript dates to 100 years before Jesus lived. The prophecy was written before the actual events. And this is not unique to Isaiah. Modern translations, the Bible that you're holding right now, uses this and other ancient manuscripts. You are reading the exact words that Jesus read about himself. Only you don't have to learn Hebrew because it's in English now. And 
what we see in prophecy is precisely the suffering servant that we encounter in the person of Jesus. He was pierced by the nails that held him to the cross. He was ridiculed and mocked. He was deemed smitten by God by those surrounding him. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. And in so doing, he took on the iniquity of us all. As Luke, the author of Acts, put it, for God of our father, the, sorry, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And there it is again. We see the tree. We were allowed to eat from the tree of life. Instead, we chose a false tree of life, where we attempted to put ourselves in the place of God. We were told to be rooted in the word of God and thus be like trees planted by a stream. Instead, we chose idols and rejected the creator, the giver of life. We were given the son, the second person of the Trinity, who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Instead of accepting him, we rejected him and nailed him to a tree. Do you see the pattern here? There's a choice. And the biblical narrative is replete with examples of us not choosing very well. And if I'm honest and look at my own life, I see that tendency in myself as well. But why does Luke mention a tree? Wouldn't wouldn't it have just been enough for Luke to say, y'all killed the Son of God, you killed Jesus? And this is where the biblical narrative and the imagery and the deep interconnectedness of Scripture gets so incredibly good. Please turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting in verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This section of scripture, uh, Moses is giving his final commandments to the nation of Israel as they're about to enter that promised land we've discussed. Now notice the language here. A hanged man is cursed by God. But what's he, what, what is he hanged on? A tree. Now, if you happen to be looking at a study Bible right now, you almost certainly have this cross-reference in there. Flip with me to Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If this doesn't stop you absolutely dead in your mental tracks, I don't know what will. When I say that the Bible is in conversation with itself, this is exactly what I mean. Trees are used repeatedly throughout the biblical narrative as symbols, as images of life. But human beings use them not only to replace the worship of the one true God, but also use them as a means of torture and death. Deuteronomy was written 1,400 years before Jesus lived. And it was written well before crucifixion was used as a method of execution. Yet, it perfectly fits within the entire biblical narrative. It foretold the events. Jesus knew that that verse in Deuteronomy was talking about him. And that's why he told his disciples before he went to the cross that that was where he was going, and he told them why. He was to take on the curse even though he didn't sin, to take away the consequences of the sin of us. Brothers and sisters, that is the grace of God. That is God's unmerited favor towards his people. Now, I have covered a lot of ground, and so I want to recap just a bit before we start closing this out. So humanity was given the tree of life. Instead, we chose disobedience. We ate from the forbidden tree, 
and because we sinned, death came into the world. We were to worship the one true God, the creator of the universe, and instead we chose to worship created things. We were told to be like trees planted in God's word. Instead, we chopped trees down and turned them into idols and instruments of death. We were given the Son of God who was and is the way, the truth, and the life. And instead of accepting him, we nailed him to a tree. Now, this looks really bleak. But thank God it doesn't end here. As Paul Harvey would have said, and now it's time for the rest of the story. And I just dated myself here, everybody who's under 30. Google Paul Harvey, he was fantastic. God uses the imagery of trees to take us directly to the good news of the Bible, the gospel of God. We, are, we see it foretold in the Old Testament. If we turn back to Isaiah, the prophet wrote, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, this is going to sound like a ridiculous question, but what's a stump? It's what's left over after you chop down a tree, right? Isaiah prophesied that the kings of Israel would cease. That happened because of Israel's sin. There was no royal line from David sitting on the throne when Jesus lived, and there is no royal throne of Davidic descent in Israel today. But Isaiah promised something else. A branch will come out from the stump, which was supposed to be dead, and it will bear fruit. We see this also in the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Out of the spiritual death that was the consequence of disobedience and sin, God brought life. That branch, Jesus, was righteous and he bore fruit. He executed not only justice, but also righteousness in the land. That branch came out of a stump which was supposed to be dead. But just like the stump, Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? And if you're still on the fence about this, if, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, this is the most important thing that I am going to say today. The cross is empty. As was commanded in Deuteronomy, Jesus was taken down from the cross that day. And as prophesied in Isaiah, he was buried in the tomb of a rich man. The cross couldn't hold him. And guess what? The grave couldn't hold him either. The empty cross and the empty grave are some of the best attested facts in ancient history. Um, this is so much the case that critics and skeptics have resorted to developing all sorts of really implausible theories that make no sense. Uh, an example of this is that Jesus just fainted on the cross and the cool air of the tomb woke him up. Um, if, if you think that's true, uh, try it. I, I don't think it's possible to have that. There is not a single example in the ancient world, not a single one, where somebody was crucified by the Roman government and they lived through it. Um, another of these hypotheses is that Jesus had, had an identical twin brother, and after Jesus died, nobody happened to notice that Jesus was still dead. Um, these hypotheses are put forward with no evidence or historical basis, in fact. They're made up whole cloth. Instead, the truth is that Jesus lived the life that you and I cannot. He died the death that we deserve, and then he rose from the grave to new life, something that you and I cannot do ourselves. And because of the work of God's divine grace, our debt has been paid in full by the Son of God. Paul puts it extremely succinctly in Romans. 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And you may have guessed this already. Uh, The Bible has a tree metaphor for this as well. Um, Later, in this same letter to the Romans, Paul wrote... And he compared God's chosen people, Israel, to the Gentiles. So what you're going to see in this next passage is the people of Israel being referred to as a cultivated olive tree and the Gentiles, the people in Rome, that's also you and me, by the way, are referred to as a wild olive tree. Let's watch what happens. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Israel. If you, are, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. The root's Jesus here, by the way. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, in this metaphor that Paul uses to describe how we achieve new life, Jesus is the root that we are grafted into, and we receive life through him. Now, I was shocked to learn that this is actually a thing that people do. You can cut off a branch from one tree and then graft it into another, and it will continue to survive and and even thrive. I'm really curious about how people first figured out to do this, but... um, to be honest, I, I don't know if I really want to meet the person who first figured it out. I, I kind of get the picture in my head that he was something like Gene Wilder in um, Young Frankenstein. But all joking aside, this is a crucial and pivotal point that I, I really don't want you to miss. We receive life because we have been supernaturally grafted into Jesus. As Paul puts it in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's now no distinction between Jew and Greek. We are all able to receive the life through Jesus that he offers. It is not our life, but his that we live by. And if you have been saved by Jesus, you will experience this by the fruit of the Spirit because that Spirit is dwelling inside of you. And the life that you live will ever be more attested to by the fruit that you bear. Let's return to the chart that I showed before. The bad news we discussed was all driven by our decisions to disobey God. It's not, if not for the grace and the love of God, that's exactly where we would have been left. But praise God, that's not where he left us. Let's look at this in reverse order. So we were given the Son of God. Remember, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And instead, we nailed him to a tree. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose to new life. We were told to be rooted like trees in God's word, meditating on his law day and night and delighting in it. Instead, we rejected God and we made trees into idols and even tools of death. But now, because of the work of Jesus, we are grafted into his new life when we become believers. We were to worship the creator God who spoke the universe into existence. Instead, we exchanged the true worship of him for the false worship of created things, trees included. But now, because of the life that we have through Jesus, we get to worship the one true God in spirit 
and in truth. Now, this leaves us with one obvious step, the tree of life. And we saw its return in our opening readings this morning. Let's go ahead and turn back to Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street and of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Chapter 22 of Revelation is the very end of the biblical narrative. There is not another chapter after it. The Apostle John was being given a glimpse into eternity. This is after death has been destroyed. This is after the enemy has been defeated. And the servants of God are eternally with him. We will get to see his face. There will be no more night. Life flows directly from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And on either side of the river, we see the tree of life healing the nations. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, the, the host of heaven sings. We get a picture of this a little bit earlier in Revelation. Um, and if we could just read this together. Um, comes from Revelation 5, verse 11 through 13. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing, and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. Amen. We will see ultimate restoration, brothers and sisters. As sure as I am that Jesus lived the life that I could not, died the death that I deserved, and rose to new life and conquered death, I am sure that we will see this. If you have placed your trust and hope in Jesus, you will have eternal life, you will experience complete healing, and you will see the face of God. This brings us to the last theological point that I want to make today. We were given the tree. God wants us to have life and have it abundantly. But we rejected him and we ate from the forbidden tree, pretending it was the real tree of life, trying to define good and evil for ourselves. But because of the work of Jesus, the tree of life isn't lost forever. It gets restored in the end. Now, despite the incredible theological implications of everything that we have covered today, there is a huge, considerable risk. And that risk is that you and I will walk out of these doors, walk into the world, and live exactly like the rest of the world does. If we are genuinely grafted into the life of Jesus, we should bear his fruit. Now, that does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that we are perfect. Brothers and sisters, I am far from perfect. But we should all seek the sanctification that is becoming more and more like Jesus over time that the Bible promises that we will see in increased measure if we live for and follow him. And I think the scriptural journey that we've been on today can help guide us to that. So here's how I think we can apply this. The first, if we look at the tree of life, we should start with a reverent fear of God. As Proverbs tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of both knowledge and wisdom. Unlike Adam and Eve, we should rest in and trust and have faith that God is not holding anything back from us because he's not. His laws are good, his intentions are kind, and he wants us, he wants you 
to have abundant life. Along with that, we need to get rid of the idols in our lives. We can all have them. We probably all do to some extent. These idols in our lives are every bit as real and every bit as dangerous as the Asherah poles that we saw earlier. This, this could be your job. It could be wealth. It could be a political party. It could be a politician. It could be your spouse or your kids. It can even be your very self. And in our culture today, it very often is. Remember, who we worship has implications beyond just the worship itself. We will become like that that we worship. And only the worship of God is going to result in life that bears fruit and eternal salvation. Next, we should root ourselves in the word of God. We are to meditate on the law of God day and night. We are to delight in his law. Whatever it is, that you need to do to get into the Bible daily, please do it. This is for your benefit. If, if you have to wake up before kids, and, and I get it, mornings can be nuts, but if you have to wake up before them to get into the Bible, then do it. If you need to join a life group here at Meadowbrook, do it. If you need to set aside your radio time or your podcast time and listen to the Bible on your way to work instead, do it. You will become like what you worship. Remember that. We should get rid of the things in our life that are contrary to God. And if we get into Scripture, if we meditate on it, if we memorize it, your life is going to start to bear fruit as the Holy Spirit works on your heart through the Word of God. Finally, we should have confidence in the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, Jesus really did live the life that we couldn't. He really did die the death that we deserve. He died in our place. And he really did rise again to new life. And he offered us the opportunity to be a part of that life by being grafted into him through simple faith and, simple, and simply following him. As I pray, um, Larry, would you uh, come back up and we'll, we'll close in a time of worship. Um, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time that we've gotten to spend together diving deep into your word. God, thank you that you didn't leave us where we are, that there is a way out from our rebellion and sin, that you provided a way through Jesus who lived the life that we could never live and died the death that we deserve, but gives us the ability to participate and be grafted into his life because of what he did. I lift this up in the name of the only Son of God, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.